welcome to Tech to Science podcast, the Earth, space, and the human race. I'm Kavya, and I'm Abigail. And in this fifth episode, we're talking to two experts. One is a space researcher and communicator. The other is a space entrepreneur and industry expert. So we're going to talk to them about where India is headed in the space exploration uh, of the inner solar system, from the Sun and Venus to Earth's very own orbit, the Moon and Mars. So joining us today is Chetan Mehta, who's an astrophysic graduate, uh, ex-science officer at Team Indus, and he's now a writer, a researcher, and a public speaker who's passionate about space exploration. Also with us today is Narayan Prasad, who's currently COO at SatSearch a global marketplace for space products and services. He's also the co-founder for Druva Space, a private player in India's satellite industry. And he hosts his own science podcast that is on its uh, 34th episode as of this recording. So Narayan, Jatan, I know you all put out your own space content. Where can people find it? Thank you very much, firstly, for you know having me on this particular uh, podcast. My content is just the boring podcast that people want to listen to if they're interested in space. Possibly like the only show that I know that focuses completely on the Indian space scene, you know, taking things from also the historic and the contemporary perspective, and not just the praises for the space program, but more looking at it from a critical standpoint as to what we can do better. So the New Space India podcast is uh, available on every other podcasting platform as anybody would want to listen. The whole idea is to just inspire a younger generation of people and possibly people in this row to change few things for the better. I'm a science writer. I primarily write blogs for publications and on my own blog as well. People can find everything in one place at jatan.space. That's basically the link to my website. And you will find uh, articles on planetary science, the moon, space exploration, the technologies behind it, human space flight, and so on. I want to cover the science bits of space exploration in general, because a lot of the coverage that is done is typically focused on the technology end of it. And I think that I see a gap in the science spectrum. And that's basically what I want to cover. Great. Uh, thanks so much for making the time. So we know that uh, July 2020 in particular was a pretty spectacular month and we saw three missions to Mars from UAE, US and China. We know that Mars is of course a very big deal. What are some of the other really like sought after destinations in the inner solar system? So apart from the Mars and the Moon which is popular anyway, there are other interesting destinations. One of my favorites is Venus. After the space age, Venus got a lot of highlight and there were many probes sent to Venus by both the US and the Soviet Union back then. After that, it kind of dwindled. So in the last uh, two decades, for instance, there have been just two spacecraft to Venus. We know from those past missions that Venus most likely hosted water on its surface for at least two billion years. And that's not something that you think about when you think about Venus these days because it's, you know, it's hot and it's basically not a very pleasant place. But uh, it had a surface water for about 2 billion years and it's an Earth analog that we want to study to better understand Earth as well. Then, of course, there's Mercury where there have been only two spacecraft that have ever went per se. One is uh, a flyby from the US, that's the Mariner 10, and the other is the Messenger spacecraft, which was an orbiter. Mercury is very interesting in various ways. It helps us understand things about how planets formed that we have very significant knowledge gaps on. There's, of course, Mars is, of course, there and the Moon is there, but the Moon of Mars, which is Phobos, is less explored. There have been attempts in the past to see as to 
you know what is going on in phobos because there are some things about phobos that we don't understand for instance where did it come from and we don't know its origin and that has a lot to do with the past of mars as well so you know getting an orbiter around phobos or a lander is something that would be very valuable and then there's a bunch of near earth asteroids that are very interesting but they are getting a lot of attention these days thanks to japanese hayabusa 2 mission and nasa's uh, osiris rex mission and so on from a space policy perspective it all stands on what is the combined perspective of uh, policy makers in each country as to what they prefer because for example in the case of india if you look at the mangalyaan one the objective was more or less uh, geopolitics of uh, getting there first against you know when you look at china for example and the focus was not so much on science i would say and more on the technology demonstration side and getting the soft power objective of getting to mars successfully first before china does so there is a little bit of that uh, that goes into space science exploration i hope uh, that the future missions there is a possibility of countries that would come together to do better science and also prioritize missions in a way that they can do a little bit more focused in terms of their spending because of course you can do a lot of competition and competition is good when it is when it is healthy but when the mission costs like billions of dollars if you want to think of it from a futuristic perspective or if you want to spend a trillion dollars in space exploration in 10 years time or something like that it would be rather interesting if some of these can be consolidated in a way that people can say okay you, you know we want to compete in some things but we want to cooperate in some other things unfortunately the whole space science uh, part of a global community has still not found its you know right place to to come up with that kind of argument also because they don't control a lot of the budgetary allocations and what they would want to get out of it and most often in countries like india as well a lot of the funding comes from telling policy makers that we're going to do this for the first time or we're going to do that for the first time and that attracts policy makers to fund a particular mission rather than saying i want to you know cooperate with this particular country or so on so there are some of these underlying dynamics on uh, how space exploration can be driven in a certain different fashion and how it is not so now that we're talking about like a little bit of politics at india Chandrayaan 1 created like a big buzz when it discovered water on the moon. That was like a really big thing for India. And then we have had a bunch of, you know, orbiters and landers go back to the moon. And with NASA, their current whole strategy is back to the moon. What exactly does the moon have to offer in the grandest scheme of things for space exploration? From uh, my perspective, it's uh, quite simple. I think given that the moon could be an outpost, larger space exploration to other parts of the solar system from a typical mission uh, engineering standpoint we have discovered water on the moon but uh, nobody can tell how much is the quantity exactly that is spread across the lunar surface the exciting part is of course discovering the water underneath and the potential of exploiting that resource to reach other places as of today there are you know tens of companies that are looking at uh, devising water based uh, propulsion systems and that is where you know the excitement comes for when it comes to lunar surface water you have to have a rocket that is big enough and you know the most of the money that is spent is in actually clearing the earth's atmosphere so the first 30 40 kilometers above us uh, is the most difficult part of clearing in terms of building a, a space vehicle 
and taking you know stuff outside of the earth but then what if you could use the lunar outpost and you could use the resources uh, within the moon surface typically water for example and you could produce fuel on the, the moon itself to uh, actually you know use that as a outpost to then do a lot of logistical operations between moon and mars and you know many other outposts and that's the most exciting part i would say of the moon itself what you could do with the water and then uh, what you could do with things like additive manufacturing and in space uh, manufacturing that could combine with the presence of uh, water and then do interesting uh, exploration uh, activities to expand uh, on what narayan said uh, there are destinations in the outer solar system for instance ceres in the asteroid belt which are easier to reach from the moon from an energy standpoint than they are from mars and that's not very intuitive at all but that's how it is the amount of effort that we exert into taking everything out of the earth's gravitational well is immense and uh, i don't think we can be doing that for a long time if we want to do things efficiently in the far future so that's the long term aspect of it in the short term apart from the uh, settlements part there are of course science reasons to go back to the moon and i think they are just as important the moon's airless nature essentially the moon is essentially a dormant place more or less and uh, its airless nature and the fact that it doesn't have tectonic activity which means there are records preserved of events in the past solar system that we can find on the moon you know it's sort of like an ancient archive if we go back to the moon especially in those regions where the water ice is which hasn't seen sunlight in absolutely like billions of years at least 2 3 or even 4 billions of years depending on how the geometry worked out those places are distinctive of what happened 4 billion years ago in the solar system this is also tied to not just the origin of the earth and the moon because you know there is a shared origin component for both the bodies but also the solar system the the water that comets and asteroids brought in the inner solar system in the early days is what is deposited in those permanently shadowed regions on the moon so that's where the science value comes in and that's the origin part but there's also the evolution component where if we want to figure out where what happened in the solar system uh, 500 million years ago and then 1 billion years ago and 2 billion years ago and so on uh, those records are also preserved in the form of craters which are practically untouched since their formation and in addition to water is the metal rich nature of the moon so we know for instance that there is a uh, substantial titanium in the form of titanium dioxide that can also be harnessed for settlements uh, apart from both of those things it also is a good test bed for technology for missions to other parts of the solar system so before you would send a mission to mars it's much better to you know redo a human landing and reuse a lot of those technologies or at least gain experience operational experience in those things and then move forward next one's for you as well jatan i'm i'm curious to know like india has a lot of plans in the near future to explore a lot of uh, near earth inner solar system objects including you know a third mission to the moon a venus orbiter the sun maybe even a space station which is a big deal uh, you know so what's the underlying kind of strategy that india is using to approach exploring the inner solar system like is there some kind of method to this madness or is it uh, sort of just going with the flow as for what we discover and what is geopolitically important there's two things to it one is that if you compare it to what we had 10 years ago or even 20 years ago when we practically didn't do any planetary exploration at all in that sense it's a very uh, methodological uh, thing where you know we started off with the moon orbiter and then we steered off to a mars orbiter uh, in order to get a better sense of 
uh, how you would uh, function in planetary exploration situations and how basically those uh, missions would work from an op operational standpoint as well. However, uh, there's a lack of an overarching philosophy to string those missions together. And so what often happens is supply-driven model, which is uh, mostly at the core of these planetary exploration missions. So for instance, if you take a look at uh, Mangalyan and so Mangalyan was originally supposed to go on a GSLV rocket but the GSLV rocket uh, in question could not be ready at the time for Mangalyan launch and for some reason ISRO wanted to do it earlier than let's say 2015 or something and uh, they made do with the PSLV rocket which meant that the spacecraft scope and capability of the mission gets reduced that's also the case with uh, many other missions where essentially we have we see what what kind of technologies that that we already have ready and if there's some delta that you could fill up easily and then we sort of go about doing those missions and this is in stark contrast to let's say the us model for instance where they have a mix of both of course there's always going to be a supply driven component but there's also a larger demand-driven component, which is what the US terms the decadal survey. They have a consensus report from the entire US scientific community, which is released every 10 years, which sort of prioritizes the scientific goals of each of those endeavors, you know, be it a Venus mission or a Mars one or experiments on the International Space Station and so on. So they sort of prioritize those goals in a way that uh, represents a consensus. And then that is uh, pitched forward. And more often than not, the missions in the decadal survey tend to happen. So there is definitely a demand-driven component which is prominent. And so I think if we want to be uh, pushing the boundaries further in terms of space exploration, and we have in certain ways, if we want to continue to do that, then we need to be uh, moving to much more of a demand-driven model. For Mars, there are two sides to the story. One where we want to look at its past, where we want to know whether there, there was life on the planet or if it still exists. And one is a picture that Elon Musk paints for us, where it's, uh, you know, we are living on Mars, we're doing things on Mars. So which side does uh, India lead towards? I think it's an interesting question as such, because it really depends on what is our focus in terms of space science and Unfortunately, I don't think so. We have a statement that is official on what is our stand in terms of space exploration. We don't have a specific space exploration policy. If you look at what happened with India over the 70s and the 80s, there was a very specific focus on technology and how technology can be matured over three or four decades of time. And if you look at actually the space transportation roadmap that India has, the stated goals in space transportation may stand for another 30 or 40 years because the goal of uh, producing a reusable large vehicle or two-stage to orbit or you know many other aspects of space transportation, they have been outlined very clearly in the space transportation roadmap that India has for the last you know 20, 30 years at least. They have been very clearly stated that this is what we are going to try to achieve over time. And so that gives a longer term perspective as to what is the future looking like. But unfortunately, on the space exploration and the space science side, we don't have a long and drawn out uh, architecture on where we are heading and what we'll exactly be doing in the next uh, 30 or 40 years. So I guess, you know, if we put our brains together and have not just the ISRO community, but the larger space science community the astrophysics community and the whole exploration community kind of come together 
there may be a possibility of creating such a roadmap where we have then set an overarching framework as to what will be India's specific goals in terms of space science and exploration for the next 20 or 30 years. And that also can give a signal to other countries who would want to partner with India, saying India has then stated its uh, objectives in the next 20 or 30 years, and then they can uh, themselves align their activities to see if there are synergies with respect to what we do. And through that, you know, there could be a better collaborative approach to what uh, we are doing in terms of either going to Mars or even other destinations. Coming closer to home, the International Space Station, I mean, it's right here in orbit and it's been an incredible effort for 20 years. Partner countries in the US have kept it running and had people in space for 20 years nonstop. It's given us invaluable insight into what it takes to have humans healthy in space how to work in space. What are the things that we're still unprepared for in that aspect, you know, having settlements, not just in orbit, but even other planets, uh, Jatin? There are a few things that uh, directly translate from the experience gained at the International Space Station to the moon. For instance, living for longer periods in space in uh, low or microgravity environments is definitely something that translates well and that we have been doing for decades now. So that's one thing. But apart from that, there are other things, for instance, like the radiation environment and the dust environment on the moon, which is also similar on many other bodies of the solar system, is not at all the same compared to the International Space Station. Uh, The radiation component on the International Space Station, while a bit higher than uh, on the surface of the Earth, is still substantially lower than on the moon. And so if we want to, say, focus on habitats on the moon for long-term settlements and so on, we need to solve the radiation problem and more specific to the moon, the lunar dust problem. The lunar dust is not a very pleasant thing. It can get, it's very fine and it can get into places. And there are talks by Apollo astronauts where they describe how difficult it was to get rid of the lunar dust whenever they went for excursions during their mission. But apart from that, there's a much more larger technological component, which I think is also in the building as we speak. One of the reasons why the International Space Station works and has been working remarkably well is because we have uh, rockets and spacecraft that are reliable enough to be produced in a high enough volume at a high enough cadence that we can constantly supply, you know, uh, materials, food, uh, astronauts, and bring them back and so on. So we have a reasonably high volume and cadence for the technology components that make up and maintain the International Space Station. But that sort of a cadence is missing for the moon. So that would be the first step to have big enough rockets because the moon is much further away and landing on it would also cost extra in terms of energy. The big spacecraft with a high cadence that can continuously, uh, you know, land on the moon or orbit on the moon. That would be the challenge to create, essentially. And then there's the last component, technologies, which allow us to use uh, those resources on the moon and be able to do something fruitful with it without having to drag everything from Earth. So I think those would broadly be the uh, primary challenges. The only thing that I would add here is that the way that we would explore other planets is, I think, by not involving more space engineers, but involving uh, scientists from other streams. By that, what I mean is you can only go so far by building rockets and you know building satellites and things like that. But you would have to involve you know people who are doing like biology or people who are doing chemistry and people are doing uh, really basic science efforts to allow them to do a little bit more in space. So if somebody says that you know we could build uh, using some kind of regulator model that can help 
humans survive a better radiation environment you know so those are i think the streams but often you know the space science community or the space technology community it becomes a bubble and i'm a part of that bubble and i know i'm a, a big part of that bubble because we often you know think only that engineers are a part of this kind of uh, an environment and you know uh, the ones to be doing all of this but engineers can only you know dream and build things that are immediate uh, and uh, is the next step but uh, only if you effectively kind of involve the the scientific community and have them do a lot of interesting experiments and then have them drive a lot of uh, technology development then it becomes a step function where you can involve interesting place in terms of how there could be a longer goal towards not just you know fly flying astronauts and saying you know we have now achieved people saying about 400 kilometers above us for like 20 years and at that point of time it also becomes boring for the public as well right you will only see what happens to water in uh, in zero gravity for one minute beyond that it's boring just to add on that point one very good example of that i think is the mars exploration program from nasa which they decided in the 1990s their goal essentially was to scientifically put it and in a very simple manner follow the water and the idea was very simple you send missions that would look for signs of water and all the processes related and connected to that and they would essentially uh, lead you to the next mission as to what are your goals for the next mission so you had a streak of orbiters in the 1990s and the first uh, rover which is sojourner and then you had curiosity and spirit the specificity of the science goals driven by this mars exploration program which is primarily demand driven from the scientists who are working in in the us that has led to substantial technological improvements to the point where the us knows how to land something on mars but not on the moon but they can do the mars bits very effectively and they if you look at specific parts of that technology stack then you can see that they have been improving by orders of magnitude so when the vikings landed for instance back in the 1970s the error margin that we typically use the term landing ellipse but essentially it means an error margin if you target a point x then how far away will it probably land from it given the errors that crop up in terms of sensors and whatnot so the landing ellipse for the viking missions was huge it was hundreds of kilometers so it's essentially like saying okay i will land somewhere in india but with perseverance you are now saying okay i will land somewhere within 10 kilometers of this region where the water was flowing so that's the sort of a difference that science driven technology can make why can't india just collaborate with the iss like why does it need to make a whole new space station is it just like a power symbol or is it necessary there is no logic to who decides uh, what in this except uh, some policy maker saying i want to do my own station rather than collaborate with somebody else of course the offer to join the international space station has been there for india for many many years i attended a iss uh, conference in here in berlin about 10 years ago and even there they were talking about other member countries coming in and participating and unfortunately the model of iss is very simple it's like you know pay to play kind of model where you have to first pay up and you have a certain amount of money that you can pay to you know play in that particular area in the, of the of the iss that is not very cheap as well because i think the the amount of money that the us spends and europe spends and even russia spends to keep up the space station is pretty high uh, on a, a regular basis and we don't know yet uh, what will happen to the station you know uh, maybe 10 years from now even 5 years from now i think there's a slight agreement that would go up to 2030 or something i've not been following it up but 
beyond that i think it's very uncertain for me i think the china space station that is happening and the india one is more of uh, taking cues with respect to what china is doing and possibly being uh, recognized as a power regionally and then using the space station as a soft power objective to say that we can also be equally good uh, in terms of technology uh, but what would be really interesting in the future is if india can be an active participant in the uh, cis lunar space because that is an uh, an exploration space uh, it's very exciting where only now the us and the us based companies are really uh, looking at investing cis lunar activities and how that could be interesting for uh, human exploration as well so i guess you know from my standpoint instead of just thinking of what has happened with space stations over the last 50 years and just saying we'll also do the same things over and over it would be interesting if india could say we'll not actually do the space station uh, directly but instead we'll directly look at uh, doing something in the cis lunar space is also new for others as well and that would be more exciting i would say from an india standpoint and also i think that would signal to the international community that india is thinking more like a step function rather than uh, replicating what china and us and others have done speaking of which i mean india and china china india we are uh, neighbors competitors we are economic powers in kind of similar standing japan have both these countries ambitions when it comes to space exploration comparable are they very different in how we think of space exploration science and exploration standpoint there is a considerable difference between the chinese uh, space exploration program the scope of it and also the progress of it compared to the indian one uh, and it's something that i think we should not overlook because a lot of the times when indian space exploration efforts are covered paddles are not drawn either intentionally or otherwise to the chinese counterparts but i think that's worth looking because especially you know if we are thinking any way to do a gaganyaan space station for instance we might as well follow the lead of china and see what they have done so for instance if you compare the lunar exploration efforts uh china started with two moon orbiters one of them was before india they successfully did two lunar orbiters and india did the same with chandrayaan 1 after the changi 1 and 2 uh, which were the orbiters china started with changi 3 development and uh, changi 3 landed successfully on the near side of the moon after that uh, instead of you know just repeating the same exercise and uh, expanding the scope of the surface mission there uh, the interesting th- thing that they did and i think that's a great example of what narayan was speaking about earlier of you know doing something distinct uh, in terms of a problem is changi 4 changi 4 uh, landed on the far side of the moon and that was not just the first landing attempt but also the first successful one and that's a- something very interesting so if you remember the chandrayaan 2 lander and rover pair were supposed to be alive on the surface for 14 earth days which is basically one lunar day that's because uh, once the lunar night kicks in you have very cold temperatures like uh, it goes as bad as minus 180 degrees celsius at its peak that's not something that your spacecraft or the rover can survive in for a prolonged period that is where the mission essentially would have and ended even if we had successfully landed on the moon but with both the changi 3 in 2013 and changi 4 in 2018 they make use of nuclear powered isotopes the technology of which they built just like the us has it and the and russia has it that allows both the rover and the lander in the missions to function for you know much more than one lunar day so changi 4 has passed one and a half years and is still alive and doing science and changi 3 is also barely alive on the surface although we don't hear about it a lot but that's sort of interesting that 
you know they have two landers on the surface the tianmen uh, orbiter and rover pair that china has sent assuming that it goes successful then it would be a huge leap while india would have been the first country to orbit mars uh the orbiter plus landing and rover pair of china would be a considerable increase of scope so that's more or less the science bits of it but there's the other part which is china is also thinking about undertaking uh missions to the outer solar system so they are thinking about a voyager class mission where they just try to cross the solar boundary and enter interstellar space and study objects in between it is also on the way of building its space station they have already built two so essentially what we are trying with gaganyaan they have done that in 2005 with the experience that they gained now they are building a much more larger modular space station i think that's great uh, and what i think we can pick up from it is that if we are going the route of a self built gaganyaan station anyway and not collaborate with the iss what we can at least do is uh, just look at the chinese model and the progress and the amount of resources they are putting into this and try to replicate that because it would help us grow faster in the related science and technology bits we are not going to go to like nasa at all because i think nasa is doing things that isro can't do right now as compared to china do you think india's ambitions their goals they are much more lower uh, than theirs with the exception of the chandrayaan missions especially the orbiter parts uh, much less the lander uh, i think the orbiter is doing far more interesting science and the scope of the exploration is also larger in terms of the uh, technology development for the instruments but with that exception uh, i think in general yes we are aiming lower than uh, the chinese uh, counterparts for space exploration and i think there is enough room and capacity in the country to head higher it's just a matter of us having a formal policy which nara touched upon earlier where you know we don't have a space exploration policy in the first place if, if that is the thing which is making these uh, missions sort of you know one off and not wider in scope and not part of a program or something of the sort so china ha- actually has a process i talked about the us process uh, earlier uh, so china has a similar process which is driven by the chinese academy of sciences i think we have all the components required individually to enable that it's just a matter of someone actually looking at it and deciding we should do that as well been almost a year since the us has started their space force and i don't mean netflix's show with steve carell it, it's only a matter of time before other countries do the same will that put like a uh, dampener on space exploration narayan so in fact it might do the exact uh, opposite uh where you have uh, more and more countries uh, investing more and more in space because now what will happen is after the us has come up with the space force the japanese have announced a very similar uh, force that is looking at space from a military standpoint we have number of other countries including italy and others now looking at a formal space force as well and even within india there was a proposal for the space command and unfortunately we don't have a space command we have no defense space agency instead which means that you know the focus of uh, more and more countries may be looking at uh, investing in some very niche technologies that does not have an immediate civilian focus but as we all know uh, you know over time things trickle down into the civilian domain and that is the best case for you know funding and seeding uh, modern technologies and technologies that are not of immediate civilian interest we should hope that the military investments in space that are happening today can translate into things like planetary defense can translate into things like uh, long term presence of human uh, humans in outer space uh, can also translate into mapping of space debris and uh, knowing the space environment in a real time fashion in a much more capable manner i would say that uh, 
is is the way forward in terms of hoping that none of these technologies and none of these investments will lead to a real war in space between nations but uh, it will be a deterrent from countries conflicting with each other and using space as a domain of warfare india has done a lot to explore with orbiters the inner solar system but we have yet to send an orbiter any kind of mission beyond the asteroid belt is there any reason for that uh, one of the major blockers assuming an intent would be power essentially because at jupiter and beyond the sun uh, really dwindles in in the amount of power that uh, you get there so basically if you are five times farther away from the sun than earth is then your uh, power you are getting is 25 times less and it only continues to become worse as you uh, try to explore saturn uranus and beyond it only continues to get much more worse surviving the lunar night Uh, the same thing that would allow you to survive the lunar night would allow you to uh, explore the outer solar system that's a common thread and which is one of the reasons why china is now thinking about outer, outer solar system because they have already proven the surviving the uh, lunar night challenges our gslv mark 3 which is the most uh, powerful rocket that we have and that is only operational since a year or so now uh, can put essentially 10000 kilograms in low earth orbit if you extend it to the moon mars jupiter and beyond then the payload capacity just drastically reduces solar system missions tend to be heavier and even the most uh, compact mission that has been ever sent to the outer solar system was new horizons that uh, gave us our first look at pluto was 500 kilograms approximately and that was very compact fundamental problem here apart from power would be having a capable enough rocket that can allow you to venture out there we can always use gravity assists to go beyond but it can't solve fundamental problems per se yeah i think those are the three top ones thank you that's it from us i think uh, it was great having you and thank you thank you for having me bye 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 bye